Welcome to World War I Centennial News. It's about World War I news 100 years ago this week, and it's about World War I now, news and updates about the centennial and the commemoration. World War I Centennial News is brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission and the Pritzker Military Museum and Library. Today is May 3rd, 2017, and I'm Teo Mayer, Chief Technologist for the World War I Centennial Commission and your host today. We've gone back in time 100 years to the week ending April and beginning May 1917. We'll start taking a look at what's happening here in the U.S. Although America can't immediately field a giant fighting force and ship it to the Western Front, the U.S. government is all in in other ways. No longer limited, under a declaration of war, the U.S. Navy gets busy and sends destroyers across the Atlantic to engage the German U-boats, which are ravaging Allied shipping. Remember, the U.S. Navy has been a force to be reckoned with for about 100 years, ever since it distinguished itself during the War of 1812, a war, incidentally, against the British, not with them. Meanwhile, we not only have an effective Navy, but we also have money. Unlike the European allies and foes, we haven't depleted our economy through years of war. So President Wilson's Treasury Secretary, William McAdoo, puts together a ginormous loan for the Bank of England. He hands him a check for $200 million, the equivalent of $4 billion today. That's the largest single check the U.S. Treasury had ever written. But we Americans are a pragmatic lot. This is, of course, not a gift. It's a loan. And as has become typical with a lot of U.S. international government dealings to this very day, the money is only to be used to pay American companies for products and services on behalf of the U.K.'s war effort. So it's a loan to our ally to be paid back and to be used to purchase American goods from U.S. suppliers. War has always been good for business. One more interesting note, and yet another amazing parallel in history. Mr. McAdoo, our Secretary of the Treasury, also happens to be President Wilson's son-in-law. Family in the cabinet is a long-standing tradition. Meanwhile, on the Western Front, in Europe, things are near disastrous. The mutinies among the French troops are expanding. For example, the 2nd Battalion of the 18th French Regiment suffered two-thirds casualties in the Nouvelle Offensive around April 16. Just 10 days later, the general command sends in a new crop of officers, the original ones having been killed. The men are ordered back to the front. This doesn't go down well. Instead of heading for the front, the troops ransack the local stores of wine and get soused, shouting, down with the war. They clearly have had enough. This is unfortunately not an isolated incident. For example, on the same day in the Champagne region, 200 men fled into the woods rather than report back to the front. Joining us to tell us more about how Germans are using the demoralization of the Allied troops, not only in France, but also in Russia, is former NPR correspondent Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog. Russia is effectively in revolution, costing the Allies a crucial partner and delighting the Germans who happily fuel the fires of dissent. Mike, what's happening with Russia? A lot. Here are the headlines from this week a century ago. Will Russia stay in the war? Lenin calls for end to Russia's role as desertion spreads. Germans flood the battlefield with propaganda, and this is special to the Great War Project. In Russia, the conflict between pro and anti-war forces is growing and bringing more and more uncertainty to Russia's continuing participation in the war a century ago. 
In late April, a small contingent of Russian soldiers demanded an immediate peace, writes historian Martin Gilbert, with a simultaneous laying down of arms by both sides. At this moment in the war, a larger anti-war contingent of Russian soldiers does not emerge, lacking the support from the officer corps. Deep divisions within the Russian army crack into the open. There are threats that soldiers and officers could attack one another. So the pro-war forces adopt increased disciplinary measures, reports Gilbert. Nonetheless, the resistance and indiscipline in Russia are spreading rapidly. The Russian command drafts large contingents of 1,000 soldiers who are stationed in the rear. Only 150 to 250 troops actually appear at the front for service. And there are more indications that Russian troops are fleeing the battlefield, refusing to fight. In the munitions factories, Bolshevik anti-war propaganda was incessant. On April 23rd, the Bolshevik party's newspaper Pravda asked the Russian soldiers, are you willing to fight for this, that the English capitalists should rob Mesopotamia and Palestine? The Bolshevik firebrand leader, Vladimir Lenin, is in Petrograd, the Russian capital. Lenin's return home is arranged by the Germans. They hope that he will take control and boost support to the anti-war forces. Looking at the Russian situation from Germany, General Max Hoffman noted in his diary, we are showering the newspapers and leaflets on the Russians and trying to get at them in various ways, observes Hoffman. The Russian Revolution is a godsend to us. But still, that is not enough to end Russia's participation in the war. The Germans looked with alarm at the decision of the Russian provisional government to remain at war. In these days, 100 years ago, more than 50,000 wounded Russian soldiers demonstrated in favor of the continuation of the war. Much to Lenin's distress, writes Gilbert, the Petrograd Soviet or Council gave its support to the provisional government. Nonetheless, chaos in Russia is only growing. Reports historian Gilbert, the Eastern Front would remain in place despite a massive increase of the number of deserters, as many as two million by these days a century ago. At the same time, nightlife in Petrograd remains lively despite the desperate conditions in the army and on the front. Theaters and cabarets remained open. The opera and ballet seasons are in full swing. At the Europe nightclub, writes Gilbert, Jimmy the barman from the old Waldorf Astoria continued to purvey his famous concoctions to the delight of his late night clientele. And that's just some of the headlines from the war a century ago. Thank you, Mike. That was Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog. Moving on to the Great War in the Sky. 100 years ago this week, we're wrapping up Bloody April, a disastrous period for the Allied Flyers, where a new pilot had a life expectancy of just 11 days. Two Allied aces that were lost in late April and early March are American pilot John J. Malone and British ace Captain Albert Ball, who was killed in a crash following a dogfight with Lothar von Richthofen, the brother of the Red Baron. Both brothers are German pilots. On the U.S. domestic front, last week, we told you the story about the launch of the Boeing Aircraft Company. We received a lot of positive feedback and interest on the story. So with us today is Michael Lombardi, the senior corporate historian for the Boeing Company. Michael, thank you for joining us. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thank you, Michael. Now, rebranding his company, the Pacific Aero Products Company, a component yeah. manufacturer, to the Boeing Airplane Company, an airplane supplier, within days of the U.S. declaration of war, carries all the business acumen, entrepreneurial spirit, innovation, and technology attributes that define much of the American character that emerged as a result of World War I. 
we want to know more about Mr. William Boeing. Could you give us some insight? Well, you mentioned a couple words right there, which are he, uh, entrepreneurial. He was a renaissance man. He was a businessman. He came to the airplane business already with his own wealth which was unlike a lot of the others who were pioneers of the industry, who were engineers and wanted to build their own airplanes. And Bill Boeing came to it as a visionary. He really saw that there was a future to this technology. So I think that's the thing that really defines him, is his vision that the airplane had a future, both in commercial, but also in military. It's really interesting that even far away here in Seattle, which was very isolated at that time, he was already envisioning air power, the military use of the airplane when he started the company. He even went about dropping paper bombs over Seattle to alert the citizens here of the danger they were in without having airplanes to defend them. So he was really forward thinking. Well, Michael, what, what did the company do during the 18 months of the war? And then what did they do in the years following? Bill Boeing, when he when he launched his company based on his first airplane, the, the B&W, which was named after his initial Boeing and his partner, Conrad Westervelt, who was a U.S. Navy officer, they decided that they could build a better airplane. And together they went about it, designed this airplane, the B&W, and managed to get it to fly and it flew fairly well. And based on that, they started the company. Actually, Bill Boeing started it because Westervelt got called back to service on the East Coast. And so Boeing went forward with the company. And based on that airplane, the U.S. Navy had some interest. So Bill Boeing pursued that interest along with prompting from his friend Westervelt. They designed another airplane that was called the Model C. Once the war started and the need here in the, in the United States for airplanes with this large commitment that America made to the Allies, the Navy enlisted Boeing to build 50 of those Model C airplanes. Uh, they were, would be trainer airplanes for Navy pilots. So Bill Boeing, starting with just about uh, a little over 100 employees, had to ramp up his factory quickly. And additionally, the Navy came back and offered the Boeing Airplane Company a contract to build 50 Curtis flying boats under license, HS2Ls. Curtis was the uh, the big company in America at that time and the one that, that Bill Boeing was chasing. But what's interesting is that there were probably 30 or so airplane manufacturers at the end of the war in the United States. And 10 years later, of those 30, there were only three that remained, and that was Boeing, Curtis, and Martin. And today, of course, Martin with Lockheed Martin and Boeing are still the main aircraft manufacturers in the United States. By 1929, Bill Boeing had started his own airline. So within 10 years after the war effort, Bill Boeing had given the United States an aviation infrastructure, an airline infrastructure, and that airline would eventually become United Airlines. It, it was much like, you think of his business, airplane business at, at that time, much like the computer business, software, high-tech business of today. Um, just incredible accomplishment in just a short time. Thank you, Mike. Well, World War I is the war that changed the world, and William Boeing and the company he founded are certainly part of it. Thank you, Michael Lombardi. Yeah. Thank you so much. My Thank pleasure. You. Thank you. Mike Lombardi, Senior Corporate Historian for the Boeing Company. For video about World War I, our friends at the Great War Channel on YouTube have some new posts for you this week. First, they did a segment called Out of the Trenches. This is another episode where Indy Nidell, the host, answers viewer questions. Another one 
Turmoil in the French army expands on the challenges we've been speaking about ourselves. And the last, the fight for air supremacy. Bloody April in 1917 is a great summary for the war in the sky in 2017 as an overview. The videos are really informative and another great way to follow the history of World War I from a more European perspective. So we invite you to join the Great War Channel on YouTube. Let's zoom forward in time to World War I Centennial News now. And we'll begin with activities and events. It's spring and the boys of summer are getting ready for another season. We're happy to announce the first of many collaborations with the World War I Centennial and professional sports. The commission's been working with the president of the International League and East Coast Minor Baseball League. This May and into June, they're going to be highlighting centennial commemorations during their games. Each park will have a slightly different approach and a way of showcasing the history of World War I. In Louisville, one of our commissioners is going to be throwing out the first pitch. And in Virginia, the State World War I Commission plans to have a living history truck. They're going to invite people to bring in pictures of their ancestors who fought in World War I to be scanned and archived right there and then. They'll also help people do research on the pictures so the family leaves knowing more about their families, veterans, and service. Upcoming games with scheduled World War I Centennial events include May 20 in Scranton, May 21 in Louisville, May 23 in Charlotte, May 27th in Pawtucket, May 29th in Gwinnett, and June 1st through 4th in Norfolk. For a complete list of the league's games, follow the link in the podcast notes. It's time for updates from the states. In the land of opportunity state, Arkansas, at the State Archives in Little Rock, there is an exhibit honoring and exploring the U.S. and state's involvement in World War I through artifacts, documents, and photographs. Many of these historic items were picked up off the battlefield by a gentleman named Louis C. Gully, a local working as a postmaster for the American Expeditionary Forces in Europe during the war. This month, they are adding a traveling exhibit, The Great War. Arkansas in World War I that showcases images from the Arkansas State Archives and highlights the achievement and sacrifices of Arkansans in the war. Stop by before May 6th and you catch both the exhibits at the same time. In Massachusetts, where 6,500 Springfield residents fought in World War I, one of the regiments in particular is being remembered this week. Brian Willett of the Military Order of the Purple Heart and the city's Veterans Services Department organized a ceremony to honor the 104th Infantry Regiment of the 26th Massachusetts National Guard. The 104th were the first American military unit to be given a foreign decoration for valor during battle, the Croix de Guerre. Mayor Dominic Sarno and Eric Segundo, Massachusetts State Commander of the Veterans of Foreign Wars, placed a wreath at the monument to the 104th. Later, they raised our World War I Centennial Commemoration flag. For those of you who haven't seen it, there is actually a World War I Centennial flag that you can acquire in our merchandise shop. Moving on to our World War I Spotlight in the Media. For our listeners who do not know him, let me introduce Sergeant Stubby. He was a dog. He served for 18 months and participated in 17 battles on the Western Front. Stubby saved his regiment from surprise mustard gas attacks, found and comforted the wounded, and once caught a German soldier by the seat of his pants, holding him until human American soldiers arrived. 
he was promoted to the rank of sergeant and decorated with medals. Back home, his exploits were front page news in major newspapers. Well, Sergeant Stubby's exploits are being turned into an animated film. And with us today for an update on the movie is Jordan Beck, head of communications for Fun Academy Motion Pictures. Welcome, Jordan. Hey, Teo, thanks for having me. That was a really great introduction to our project. Uh, you saved me a lot of work. Give us an overview and tell us a little bit about the project. Sure. So um, as you mentioned, Sergeant Stubby is the most decorated uh, canine hero in American history. And so we're really honored to have found this story and able to bring it to uh, audiences that might otherwise not get this piece of history. You know, to see early 20th century history through the eyes of a dog really expands the reach of the World War I Centennial Commission's mission to honor and remember that time in American history. So we've assembled a really great A-list cast to help us with this. Um, Logan Lerman is voicing Robert Conroy, who was Sergeant Stubby's owner. Stubby was a small stray dog that just wandered onto the parade grounds at Yale University while the 102nd Infantry Regiment, also of the 26th Yankee Division, were training on the grounds of Yale. And this dog just adopted a soldier named J. Robert Conroy. We have Logan Lerman voicing Conroy and the one who really takes Stubby under his wing. You know, when, when you look at this history and you look at their story, you see that neither one of them would have survived the war without each other. We have Helena Bonham Carter voicing his elder sister Margaret. Now, we realized early on in our process that we'd written a story that was devoid of a female character. You know, it was really about Stubby and the guys. So going back into our research, we discovered that Conroy was raised in large part by his elder sister Margaret. So we introduced Margaret as a character to help tell the story through letters and journals between her and her brother. And that really helps us in expanding this time or really fleshing out this period in history for kids and frankly for adults who don't understand what the country was like and what the world was like a hundred years ago. And then who better to voice the bon vivant uh, French poilu soldier who's been in the trenches for years before the Americans arrive but takes Conroy and Stubby under his wing. Who better to voice him than Francis? his most iconic living actor, Gerard Depardieu. So we have a, a great cast that's really bringing this to life and expanding those black and white photos that we all know into full CGI animated color that the entire family can appreciate and enjoy and learn from. The animation is actually being conducted by Mikros Image. Mikros Image uh, recently worked with Paramount on The Little Prince and just completed Captain Underpants for DreamWorks. So we're going to have top quality, world-class animation to do this. And our score is being composed uh, by Patrick Doyle. Patrick Doyle is a two-time Oscar nominee. He has 60 film credits to his name. He did Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. He did Brave for Pixar. So we're really excited about the role that music is going to play in bringing this history to life. Now, you'll be able to see the film in wide theatrical release on April 13th of 2018, so about a year from now. Leading up into that film, we really wanted to give our audience a chance to join us on the journey from the concept phase to the actual film on screen. So we have a really robust social media campaign right now. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. That's at Stubby Movie. We're honored to have the World War I Centennial Commission as a partner, as well as a French counterpart, La Mission du Centenaire. We also have received letters of endorsement from the Connecticut State Library, because Sergeant Stubby was a, uh, a Connecticut hero, and the National Infantry Museum Foundation here in Columbus, Georgia. Jordan, I, I have an interesting question. You guys must have gone through a lot of discussion about whether Stubby was going to have a voice. Does he? <laughs> so that is a fantastic question. 
we decided that because this is a historical film and while it is a, a work of historical fiction, we want to retain as much authenticity as possible. Stubby didn't actually talk in history. So we made the decision that we aren't going to anthropomorphize Stubby to include a voice. Um, so Stubby doesn't talk, but he is very expressive as dogs are. And really for Stubby to have done all of those heroic actions in history, he didn't have to say gas, gas, gas. He developed his own method of communication that the uh, men of the 102nd were able to understand. They could look at Stubby and realize, oh, wow, gas attack incoming or incoming shells because he could hear ordinances as it was flying through the air. So we wanted to keep that level of authenticity and really uh, allow the, the historical Stubby's method of communication to be part of this animated film. That's great. So, Jordan, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. And that was Jordan Beck, head of communications for Fun Academy Motion Pictures, talking about the upcoming feature film, Sergeant Stubby. This week, we're combining our international and education reports. Here's a story about students at the American School in Paris. They recently started a new class assignment, the Monuments Project. With more than 35,000 Americans buried and memorialized overseas from World War I, there are thousands of untold stories, and the students are uncovering some of these unknown stories and personal histories. The project is a collaboration between the American Battle Monuments Commission, the American School of Paris, and Lopez Island Middle School of Washington State. 100 students in France and Washington State began working together, researching the lives of the soldiers who attended the service. Learn more about this by following the link in the podcast notes. Moving on to news from the Commission's blossoming website. There's a new site segment that went live this week. Vendée Mataram in the USA is a site about Asian Indians in World War I America. When the United States entered World War I, only a few tens of thousands of immigrants from colonial India lived in the nation, mostly on the West Coast. Yet this tiny community received enormous press coverage immediately after the declaration of war. The spotlight came from a wave of arrests of Indian nationalists and Germans accused of conspiring to overthrow the British Raj. But while the press was focused on covering the plot and the trial, many Asian Indian immigrants were serving in the United States Armed Forces. Their record of service and their struggle for civil rights after World War I led eventually to full citizenship rights for themselves and their descendants. Check out their story at www.cc.org/vande. That's V-A-N-D-E, all lowercase. For 100 Cities, 100 Memorials, the $200,000 matching grant program for rescuing ailing World War I memorials, we want to put out a reminder that there are less than 45 days before the grant application submissions close. We know this isn't enough time to crank up a whole project, but don't miss the deadline if you're doing one of the projects. Also, if you have a World War I memorial project and you didn't know about the program, you still have time to apply at www.cc.org slash 100 memorials. Any restoration project completed after January 1st, 2014 and to be completed by November 11th, 2018 qualifies. Check it out at www.cc.org slash 100 memorials. The Military Times is running a series of articles about each military branch's experience during World War I. 
This week, there's a great article about the Marine Corps and their bravery at Bellow Woods, authored by retired Sergeant Major Brian B. Battaglia. He served 36 years in the Marine Corps. Read the story by following the link in the podcast notes. In our Write blog, which explores World War I's influence on contemporary writing and scholarship, this week's featured post comes from blog curator Jennifer Orthveil, whose post discusses French censorship of films and literature that portrayed overly negative images of the war. In her post, the film Path of Glory by Stanley Kubrick, as well as Gabriel Chevalier's book Fear, were considered threats to French vision of patriotism and triumph after the armistice of 1918. Read her post at www.cc.org slash W-W-R-I-T-E, all lowercase. Moving on to World War I and social media with The Buzz. With us is Catherine Akey, the Commission's social media director. Hi, Catherine. Hi. Well, in August 1917, members of President Wilson's cabinet and other officials were assembled to get in shape for the war. Among them was 35-year-old Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Franklin D. Roosevelt, who would be paralyzed shortly thereafter by polio. Mashable recently published an article of images of the cabinet completing a simple eight-minute exercise routine called The Daily Dozen, a sequence of calisthenic motions. It's an interesting glimpse into how preparations for the war made their way into all nooks and crannies of governmental life. There's a story in the Annapolis Capital Gazette about the life and death of Lieutenant Clarence Crace Thomas. He was given command of the merchant steamship SS Vacuum two weeks before the U.S. declared war on Germany at the age of 31. Soon after he took command, a torpedo from the German submarine U-21 hit the SS Vacuum while he was on the deck of the ship. The explosion threw Thomas and the gun's crew into the water. Although the vacuum sunk, the rest of the crew was able to escape safely, getting picked up by a nearby ship. Thomas was picked up as well, but died thereafter from exposure, becoming the first naval officer casualty of the war. He was posthumously awarded the Navy Cross, and the destroyer USS Thomas was named after him in July 1918. Finally, I wanted to point out the single most popular article we posted on Facebook the past week about an unsung hero of the war that saved thousands and thousands of lives, Moss. During the war, sepsis was prevalent and an incredible problem for medics. By December 1915, a British report warned that the thousands of wounded men were threatening to exhaust the material for bandages, but ultimately there just wasn't enough cotton, a substance that was already in high demand for uniforms. So a Scottish surgeon botanist duo had an idea, stuff the wounds full of moss. Yes, moss the plant, peat moss to be exact. Today, this tiny little plant is known for its use in horticulture and biofuel, not to mention its starring role in preserving thousands of years old bog bodies. But humans have used it for at least a thousand years to help heal their injuries. Read more about the role of moss in healthcare in the last thousand years and during the war at Smithsonian Magazine's article, How Humble Moss Healed the Wounds of Thousands in World War I. That's World War I Centennial News for this week. Thank you for listening. We also want to thank our guests, Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog, Michael Lombardi, the senior corporate historian for the Boeing Company, Jordan Beck, head of communications for Fun Academy Motion Pictures, Catherine Akey, the commission's social media director and also our line producer for the show, 
and I'm Teo Mayer, your host this week. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs are to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I. We're bringing the lessons of 100 years ago into today's classrooms. We're helping to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across the country. And we're building a national World War I memorial in our nation's capital in Washington, D.C. We rely entirely on your donations. No government appropriations or taxes are being used. So please give what you can. And it's easy by texting the word WW1NOW to 41444. That's WW1NOW to 41444. Or you can give online at WW1CC.org slash donate, all lowercase. World War I Centennial News is brought to you as a part of this effort. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, for their support. The podcast can be found on our website at WW1CC.org slash CN on iTunes and Google Play at WW1 Centennial News. Our Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC, and we're on Facebook at WW1 Centennial. Thanks for joining us, and don't forget to talk to somebody about the centennial of World War I this week. So long.